When Arsenal knocks on the door of players, it's a different knock than other clubs. Clubs, clubs, clubs. The Different Knock, an Arsenal podcast. This new contract here at Arsenal, but what made you so sure that this was the best place and this was the right decision for you? It's Arsenal, you know. Come on, it's Arsenal. Welcome back to The Bold and a Manager, an Arsenal podcast with Alexander Moneypenny and my very good friends. Bradley Adams. George V. I say my very good friends. Would very good friends allow me to get my hopes up? Would very good friends allow me to be this sad? Would they... <laughs> Would they, Bradley? We're still winning the league. <laughs> <laughs> don't care. I don't care. Welcome back to the Delusion Podcast with the Bradley Adams. Yeah. Um, hello, everyone. Hope you are uh, recovered, doing well, okay, etc., etc. Um, I have a lot to get off my chest. Ch- chest. <laughs> it's it's also I've got New a Zealand. lot to get off my chest. <laughs> <laughs> it's also a New Zealand podcast. Um, I imagine you boys do too. Uh, Arsenal, nil. Brighton, a three. Title hopes down the drain. It's a it's a tricky one to know where to start. I'm going to start with a little monologue that hopefully will set the tone of the conversation. Here because is Hamlet, Act 2, Scene 3, <laughs> yeah. to be or not to be. But soft. Because what like, three under-window bricks? Because that the will be more Juliet interesting than just arrive. being fucking depressed. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes, it's... Uh, look, okay. If you spoke to any Arsenal fan at the beginning of the season, none of them would have said, let's say we had 10 games against Man City that we win any more or get a, get draws or points even out of any more than, say, two or three. We know that we are not as good as Man City. Fact number one. Also true, yesterday was not acceptable. It was not good enough. Also true. Point number three that's also true is we accept that this... Um, this team is in a transitional period or is is behind in its development in terms of, you know, we are not at the level we want to be and we accept that we have bought project players and we are in the middle of those players becoming a project. I thought those comments, which we'll speak about news and views from, from Mikel, um, George, we, we talked about on, on WhatsApp, um, were fascinating. And I think, you know, mm-hmm. we know and appreciate this team is not, has not reached its maturity level. Truth number four. Truth number four, sorry, sorry, truth number three. Truth number four, there are very obvious holes in this team that need fixing, that need sorting and became more and more obvious yesterday. So I find myself in the middle of all those four plus another six or seven, feeling quite conflicted, confused, kind of okay about it and sad at the same time. It's a really real mix of emotions for me because I can I can see and I can feel the mat- maturing process happening in front of me. And then I also watch and, and I can see what we were trying to do yesterday. And we'll talk about the tactical stuff. But I also feel really disappointed. Um, and my word of the game is is mixed because that's how I feel. I feel really disappointed. I feel really upset the way this, this thing's gone. 
you can hold two truths at the same time. The Saliba thing is obviously a massive issue, a massive problem. But also, we were conceding goals with Saliba. It's not just that. So there's so many, there's so many feelings. George, I'll come to you first. Um, how how do you sum up yesterday? What's your word of the game? And and where where are you at? I suppose because this does feel like a sort of Newcastle last season, uh, missing out on Europe the season before type moment. Uh, this game. Well, I I would say the word of the game is unacceptable, um, and I and I'm very opposite about where I am generally with the team. Like I'm quite optimistic about where I am with the team. The reason I say unacceptable is because I feel as though we'll probably get in the tactics, but what we saw from the second half was not just a capitulation. It was giving up. The players stopped running um, entirely. And look, you can understand it. There's a lot of emotional drain, by the way, that goes into recognizing yourself that the title is gone and don't kid yourselves for a moment. As soon as that goal goes in, that's what every single player is thinking at that moment. We have just lost the title. Um, and they haven't been in a period to understand those troughs, by the way, because City were feeling that for the last five weeks and they didn't show it. And um, I think that's the experience part that when you talk about controlling your emotions a bit and being able to do it, that this team needed to go through. When you talk about being able to go from the Newcastle point of view to what we saw this season, there's a lot of improvements that we've seen, but uh, I've been talking about it kind of in group chats, and I, you know, you boys are in these group chats as well, about what went wrong. I think there's two things that are happening right here, right? In this game, there's a manner to lose, and I think there's there's it's unacceptable the way that we did lose because I think every fan would accept a loss to Brighton, but the way we did it in terms of abandoning our fundamentals, which, by the way, has been a common theme in the last five to six weeks, not just with Rob Holding, but we have abandoned our fundamentals. That has been the biggest frustration for me, um, and not just with the team, but with Mikel. And it doesn't mean that you think Mikel is bad. It doesn't mean that you think Mikel is no longer the coach for the team, but it is a criticism, a point of improvement for him to do, because I think that you need to understand what got you to a certain point and respect that fundamental. Because I think the press was very good in the first half. I actually think it was immense in the first half. We didn't see it because we weren't clinical with, with the forced turnovers that we caused. But um, moving on, the second half was unacceptable. And I don't want to take away too much tactical stuff there because we'll talk about it. But just generally, I don't see how you cannot be positive about this team's trajectory. We can talk about how disappointing, and that's why I led with it first, but I don't see how you can look at the squad size of the team to look at what we've improved on from going from fifth to guaranteed second, by the way, and understanding that this would have been an unprecedented win. I keep repeating this fact, and I don't think people have let it sink sunk in, but if Arsenal were to win, it would not have been done before. It was an outlier. It was not normal. So to say something is bottled, in my opinion, is when you expect to reach an objective and you don't reach it. You fail to do so. What I kind of equate this to is essentially leading a course, having a 91% and going into a final exam, getting an 85. And instead of getting an A+, plus, you got an A. That, that for me is kind of how I feel about the total of the season. Yeah, you put yourself in a position to get an A+. Plus. Yeah, it sucks that on the final exam, maybe you didn't quite get the grade that you were doing, but you didn't bottle it. You still got an A. And for the majority of the season, for 75% of the season, you were playing the best football in the world. Not just the league, but the world. Now, does that mean that you rest on your laurels and that you don't, you can't improve? No, absolutely not. We can look through that and we can kind of have some perspective here that I think that the team is absolutely on the way up. There's things to improve, but at the same token, we can be disappointed in the manner that both the players and as well as the managers performed in the last five to six weeks. That definitely mean we need some self-reflection, some learning, 
and we can go and we can move on from it. But some of the hyperbole that I've been seeing in terms of the mentality of the team being shot and forever broken, and this will be the most that we will get to, is just that. It's emotion. And I, and I think it does it lacks a perspective that um, the project requires. And Mikel certainly has, because like you said, those quotes were venomous, by the way. It was also one of the first times I felt Mikel put his players on the chopping block. I think there's been a lot of times that he's taken heat for the players. But if you look at those quotes, those aren't nice quotes. <laughs> they are very, uh, you know, pointed and they very much... Scathing. Place, scathing, Very yeah. scathing. And I don't think they gloss over the issues, which to me no. is the positive. And um, post the game yesterday, he also said uh, it was a very interesting quote. I can't remember exactly what it was. It's on Arsblog at Arsblog. You can have a look at it. <clears throat> um, it was something like I saw a face of the players that I don't like, or I saw a face of people that if that's the way they are, they need to change. Kind of thing. It was a really quite quite revealing quote. George, as always, a lot of sense there. Um, I th- I think it's it's again that mixed feeling of of this. There can be loads of there. There can be simultaneous truths, which ultimately the uh, the sort of there's a, um, there's an amazing book and and there's a podcast about it called the medium, not the message. We are kind of hemmed in by the medium. We have to we have to in terms of Sky Sports, the medium is is this thing, and ultimately they, the way that is successful is it has to re- boil down very complex ideas into very simple takes, similar to Twitter, similar to you know all sorts of things. And this is why I think you know things like podcast media are not not saying us, but you know the reason fan media explodes so much is because you can have an hour to talk something through and see all of the the different sides of it. All of these things at the same time are true. You know, like yesterday's performance was unacceptable and also there's lots to be positive about. Do you know what I mean? So um it's a it's a real it's a real difficult place to be in. Brad, um your word of the game and uh Ugh. and where you're at. Because yeah I, yeah, I think I think it's a it's a very tricky space to be in to see clearly that there are issues that we knew about already and also look at a performance yesterday that was that was not <laughs> not not good enough. No. Listen, my word of the game is embarrassing, uh, mainly because I think the second half shift from a lot of those players was, and um, a lot of looking in the mirror needed to be done. Um, but I, I, I kind of want to reframe this as well with uh, kind of piggybacking off of what George said. I think the numbers was 8 out of 24, 25 Sky Sports pundits that were asked put Arsenal in their top four. And that was just in their top four, like at fourth. Not a single one of you fuckers thought this was going to happen. Not a single one of you thought we'd be in the title for this long. Um, anyone that tells you that they did are full of shit. Um, because no one expected, a t- you know, and if a team needs to break 115 alleged rules to to get to a place where they can win 15 games in a row like it, it's it's not bottling if that's what you're coming up against for me anyway um it's a i i didn't i don't mind losing the title to to city because this bar, bar a season in which they were hit with heavy injuries and the only season in the last six where they didn't perform and they hit something like 81 points liverpool won the title the one season they had an off season uh, or it would be six in a row. Like it's it's hard to to kind of not 
look at the behemoth that you're up against and go, well, do you know what? Fair enough. They did their job. They did the job they were supposed to do. And if anything, them coming second would have been a massive bottle job after spending probably over 150 to 200 million pounds on Erling Haaland over the course of his contract. You know, you're talking about a team last season who was one of the best in the world and and then just added the most elite striker currently in world football. It's hard to compete. Um, but should we have won it? Yes. Uh, from the position that we were in, I, I still think that we've we've done a, a calamitous amount of damage to ourselves. And this is this is big points of learning for the manager, for the team, uh, for the hierarchy, for it, for us all. And, and as fans, you know, you have to uh, take the rough with the smooth. And it's 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 a big old process. But none of this, none of us expected this. So I'm very grateful for the journey. And for the sadness, because it makes like there was an amazing quote by by somebody after Brazil were being taken the piss out of um, for dancing after winning. I think their quarterfinal at the quarterfinal at the World Cup, and then and then losing in the semis or something. And it's basically like you have to dance in and in and like celebrate those moments of victory, even if defeat is round the corner. Because what's the fucking point? <laughs> like otherwise, what's the point? Um, but yeah, it's it's a massively bitter pill to swallow, and um, I'm really, really kind of embarrassed about the level of performance yesterday. And I'm, I'm sure we'll get onto it tactically, but it really just was not anywhere near good enough. But um, just remember that that when because uh, I've got United fan in my DMs chatting shit. Um, who's getting absolutely put to the sword right now, trying to call this a, a, a Leicester season. Leicester got 81 points and won the Premier League. United, you're 15 points behind us. Calm yourselves. Where are you? M- literally mind the gap. <laughs> like you're closer to fucking eighth or tenth than you are us. Stop it. You're, it's And that's the that's the annoying thing as well. This situation now is the fact that we've got silly people who do not understand how football works saying that the youngest team in the league with the youngest manager in the league um that's it second youngest sorry that's it that we've hit our apex you know that that's as good as they're going to get even though they're all in their early 20s and we oh arsenal have a transfer ban we can't improve it yeah it's it's Dickhead. it's a misunderstanding of what's actually got us there yeah i think a couple of um Points of positivity, really. I suppose what I feel, as as I, as I mentioned earlier, this is has to be and surely will be a massive moment of learning for the players. And just to go through that experience, and you know, ultimately, you know, City, their group of players had to go through some some disappointments. They didn't win the first time Pep, Pep was in there um, when they were expected to win. Liverpool went to went to various finals, didn't win. You know, there there has to be a period where you go through before you get over that line. And the second thing is as well, you know, rival fans, you know, obviously it's it's an easy target, so you're bottled or whatever. But this is one of my things, and the reason I don't necessarily, you know, I'll dunk on Spurs, but not, you know, in, in sort of serious football chat. It can't be the case that a successful season is only winning a title. That is it. This has to be put down to a successful season because of because of the improvement, because of what we've if seen. If Arsenal's season is unsuccessful, what the fuck is United? Well, exactly, but but not even not even referencing other teams. You know, it's the idea that like the only success you have, it's either you succeeded, you're the best team in the world, 
or you're complete bottle jobs and you've absolutely fucked it. And you look at, as you mentioned, you know, City are, are uh, realistically should have gone six titles in a row in the best league in the world. That is, that is who we're competing with. Now, I believe there are things that we can do to get there, but we have to accept that there are certain things um, that we just, we just can't compete with. And I, and I know and I feel in my heart we have a very clear mandate going to the summer. And we'll talk about that news and views. But I think, you know, Spurs and whatever are scratching their arse. Liverpool looking around, sort of, you know, new sporting directs, whatever. There's a bit of confusion. We are like, this is what we... I would say like 80% of Arsenal fans would agree on what we need during the summer. And we're already seeing the links. You know, we're seeing Simicum, we're seeing Rice, et cetera, et cetera. So I, you- I, think, I think like part of my frustration, sorry to butt in here, is I believe that our own fans, and I hate to call some of them out, but they're also part of the problem in terms of this shift in standards where I do feel that it's important whenever you've got a business meeting or anything in life, you set smart goals, right? So these are just really concise things about planning out what you believe your direction should be from an organization standpoint, from a team perspective, whatever. If you truly in your heart of hearts believe that Arsenal had the tools to win the title this year at August 1st, 2022, <laughs> I can accept that you believe that we bottled it. Yeah, now, I don't think no there's an did. intellectual <laughs> honesty here that anyone believed that. And so I think that's where I stand because it almost seems dumb to say that we need more, but we knew this going into this season. And just because somebody has overperformed to a certain extent does not mean that expectation shifts and then the fallacy of what your squad's weakness was disappeared. Like the fact Arsenal didn't have a strong of 13 to 18 squad depth was true regardless of us attempting to fix it in January, regardless of us trying to get there without that squad depth. And so when you're doing those things, I really struggle to understand that failure part. One thing I do agree with is if you don't put yourself in the best positions to win, you're going to be frustrated as a fan, as a student, um, as any member of any organization. So that for me is is the learning part. We just can't, as fans, go to such extremes where we're the best team in the world three months ago to now we're the worst team of the top six and we have issues potentially making the top six yeah, next it's, year. It's throwing every it's throwing the baby out with the bathwater, you know, and, and realistically, you know, there's some stats, you know, we are, we've conceded 42 goals. That's more than Chelsea. That's more than United. That's more than that's City. Ho- it's more than Newcastle. That's fucking horrendous. Yes, poor. You know, so, so it's, it's not good enough, but also- How many, I think, I think something like over a third of those, over a third of those were with Rob Holding. Possibly, which is a look, big you know, fucking asterisk. Realistically, we know we know where we need to improve, and that's why I feel confident. Is is it that we have such a clear mandate going into the summer? You know, like it's like you know, not to get political, but you know, a, a let's pretend that, that let's say that there was a a a, uh, a party in charge in the UK, for example, who Fuck hadn't actually had a general election in years, and you know, the Fuck leader the hasn't actually been elected, and you know, you don't have a mandate. There's no mandate. Massive to elect- dickheads. <laughs> These are the views of Bradley Adams on the different podcast. Um, yeah, but you, you don't have hundred percent. You don't have a mandate, and we do. We have a very clear mandate going into the summer. So, George, um, I do want to discuss positives a bit more a little bit later on, but we do, we should discuss what, what went wrong yesterday. Mm-hmm. I can kind of understand the idea, right, of what we did yesterday, right? Because if you look at a Deserby team, their build-up play and what they do is extraordinary, and they can cut it through. So what I saw, and again, correct me if you think I'm wrong, what I saw was we changed our off-ball structure in certain phases out of our 4-4-2 block into a 4-3-2-1. Mm-hmm. 
I thought Jesus was the tip of it. I thought we tried to go narrow and force them wide. I didn't think, I, I thought basically we weren't trying to jump in necessarily. And when the ball into, went, went into midfield, we were trying to smash them early, get the ball back and play it forward. And and essentially where I felt it, it, it fell down, let's just talk about the first half because that feels like the almost the, the best version of the two, um, the two sort of uh, tactical ideas. In the first half, I felt like that was, Working to an extent, because I looked at the big chances created, I looked at the zone 14 touches in the first half, and I thought, okay, realistically, we've had the bigger chances. Trossard hit the bar. A better, a better shot from Erdegaard, a better shot from Saka at one point. We're 1-0 up. So I like that idea. I like the narrowing. I like the idea that Arteta was, was uh, adapting. But it was the execution, I felt, in the first half. And let's just deal with the first half um, before we talk about how, how we capitulated. I liked the idea. Because it felt as though we were getting, you know, we were we were accepting that possession wasn't going to be for us on the day, and that's maybe another discussion. How did you see it? How did you? What did you think was adapted, and, and, and why do you think that first half didn't quite work out? I feel it was about the execution. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. Broadly, for me, the the press was excellent. I mean, if you looked at the amount of turnovers that we forced with Brighton, it was actually quite clear to see. We were just very efficient with our touches in those turnovers. And I think, for me, it wasn't just the final action. I think our impetus, once we caused the turnover, wasn't at speed. We were a little bit unsure about how many bodies to commit in that one instance. And I think that indecision is what really led to a lot of breakdown in kind of attacking moves. And it went to really isolated 1v1 moments where you're kind of left a little bit frustrated. I mean, when you talk about the Trossard chance, even simply, um, most times you would think maybe a reverse ball on the Karen Tierney cutback is more the pattern of play but you know he chose to take it alone no problem and you know it's a good strike like I'm not going to nitpick that one instance but that's just an example of us maybe thinking we're not committing as many bodies forwards and maybe keeping the fundamentals but like a typical Arsenal pattern would hit KT on the overlap let him cut back to the top of the circle for an Odegaard Saka chance and I think there was countless times in that half where turnovers meant that Saka would be breaking down on the right um, Supian's 1v1 and he attempts a cutback that's cut out by Brighton and it was very clearly a coaching tactic but I want to talk about something really technical maybe so bear with me but when you look at Brighton's kind of build up um, they build up in this 4-2-4 um, basic shape and I think what Brighton did that was very different from previous games is they made the shape super super wide when they were playing this 4-2-4 so they had Caseta that was start, starting really wide and Estupian were the fullbacks but instead of coming um narrow they kept it quite wide to open up the space and as you said we kind of employed a christmas tree formation it's called in coaching circles but when you've got this 4-3-2-1 the idea of the defensive team is to block central passes and the goal from arsenal just to talk about that and why it didn't work but the goal was we're going to be stopping the entry pass kind of into Enciso, McAllister, and duncan ferguson will drop in to try to do these one two touches but right we're trying Retired, sorry, not Duncan Ferguson, <laughs> Evan Ferguson, sorry. Um, Evan Ferguson would try to drop as that nine to kind of do a one-two touch with McAllister or Enciso, depending on what side it was. And they're trying to break. And what they tried to at least make Arsenal do is run quite long. And they actually were very, very direct. And this is a one sign of actually the Arsenal press working. Um, and, you know, I, I think for us... Look, we changed a bit where Jesus would curve his run to really focus on Colwell being the primary receiver a lot of times, which confused me a bit. I think that was the one part of the press I didn't understand. I would have preferred going down the right, but the problem is, without Sully March, Matoma was their 
biggest um, kind of threat, 1v1 at wide. And so what the idea is, is when you overload to one side, so down the left, when they let Cole will have the ball, the space was on the right. And they purposely did that because they trusted Gabrielle's channel defending a lot more than they did QBRs. And so that was the uh, knowledge or why they made kind of Jesus curve left and force the ball to the left. That was the reason for it. I think where we struggled, though, um, is we weren't aggressive enough to kind of McAllister and then CISO. So when they did come short with those kind of mid-block runs after Colwell would try to fire a 35-yard pass inside, we weren't winning those duels fast enough. Namely, Jorginho wasn't jumping enough quickly. Uh, we were losing a little bit. Shaka at times wasn't hitting those kind of duels of the eight spots. And so what that meant was we kind of struggled to stop their outball because we did a really good job of forcing them wide and they were just left kind of going long. We'll go into the second half about why that stopped, but really that was the battle, the Christmas tree versus this wide 4-2-4, and it was working. It was working. Um, it was causing turnovers, and I think we, bar us not doing a couple things uh, individually in the final action and in turnovers, we would have made use of a lot of these things. You mentioned the three big moments, Alex, but I think generally Martinelli, for example, prior to him coming off, was having a lot of joy. Um, and, you know, if we did have another alternative profile, a.k.a. Reese Nelson, again, I don't agree with this idea of Trissard as a touchline winger. No. I think Mikel has made a mistake the there. I watch him, yeah. Yeah, and I, and I just think he's a close combination player. If you're not going to put him into central midfield, or you have to use him as a Jesus alternative. Like, he is a close combo, one-two touch, in and around the box kind of release player. And I think Reese Nelson was just the more logical choice, um, primarily to help with this kind of wide build-up. I think he because again, that when he came on as well. He did, and, and I think one interesting thing that not a lot of people are talking about is Caicedo did the Zinchenko role like in possession Brighton did what we do <laughs> and so they built in a 4-2-4 but when they kind of had possession in the mid block you know Caicedo dropped into the pivot and he had a little bit of freedom being able to operate and that was a big issue if you wanted to kind of break Brighton on the turn or on the half turn in the counter you got to make sure that you're spreading width in the left wing and I you're not going to do that with Trissard he can take up those spaces, but he doesn't have the explosiveness to get away from Casado in the same way. So you're basically isolating um, Bakayo Saka to essentially do everything on a end. And he did a good job, but Ben White didn't have the greatest of games. We lost our 1v1 battle with Matoma against there, and Ben White struggled in the last couple of games as well. Uh, but I think that was the problem for me from a tactical perspective. So if we were able to keep the distances tight with that Christmas tree, I think we would have got a little bit more joy. But our pivot mainly struggled to win that duel with kind of Enciso or McAllister, who were the breakout balls um, when Brighton would try to build up and break out. So that for me was the biggest problem. Mm. Yeah, I think uh, to, to return to a couple of points, I think the Trissard thing is interesting because the only way I see him really working at the moment is, is as a false nine. I think that's his best position uh, for me at the moment in Arsenal's you know, or or possibly uh, as a left side player. Top. Well, With maybe Gabby up but, top interchanging but, I think works quite well, but maybe, not but, in this this touchline winger thing just isn't working. It doesn't work because because he he doesn't have that kind of strength to get to the byline. He doesn't have the same kind of one v one ability as George says. He's he's a, he's a close contact combination player, and and you know as much as we like him and he's a good player and whatever, I think he's being not necessarily misprofile because again, I'm sure Mikel knows that and sees that. It's more just he's being misused and that could be a, a squad building thing. But I want to return, Brad, to something you said as well about Nelson. Because I thought Nelson did really well when he came on. 
And I wonder whether it says something slightly more about our, our wider squad and something that p- perhaps as we transition to talk about the second half is worth discussing. There's a moment in the second... Yeah, no, well, no, he comes on the second half. There's a moment in the second half where Nelson just creates a little bit of separation and gets that shot away. And it's and it's a bit too flat and it he can't doesn't quite get his it wraps it doesn't quite wrap his foot around it and it doesn't quite work. But we see a freshness. We see a um a kind of uh explosiveness to Nelson that we're not seeing from the likes of Saka, we're not seeing it from Martinez, we're not seeing it from Jesus. And I wonder, this is my theory, I've been looking at injury data this week. Man City have uh, six players in their entire first team squad that have played anything less than a thousand minutes this season, right? Arsenal have 11, including the likes of Reese Nelson, including the likes of Trossard, including the likes of uh, Jorginho. Well, maybe not Jorginho now. I wonder, uh, the thing is, it's such, it's such an easy thing. It's such low-hanging fruit. But I also don't think it can necessarily be discounted to say, I don't think we're as fresh as we were. And I think if Mikel had a a wider and a bigger squad to call upon that he trusted, I wonder whether we'd be looking at a slightly fresher team, an ability to create separation and an ability to, to challenge in the second half in a way that we didn't. And I think that is a factor. Do you agree or no? Yeah. Um, I think that as much as I also understand the logic of saying it's about having a wider squad that he trusts, there's a good squad of players in there that he could have given minutes to in in lots of games this season. I think that's probably been the one thing that I really hope that he learns is being more proactive with substitutions uh, and also rotating more at points where where it, it calls for it, you know. When you look at our transfer business last summer, we added two first-team players in Zinchenko and Jesus. And our other big money signing, Fabio Vieira, hasn't been used really to the level that you'd you'd really expect from a £35 million signing. And when you have players like Saka and you have players like Erdegaard or Jesus now struggling to create that separation, struggling, they're not seeming as fresh as they were before... It, it it kind of like you said it 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 kind of shows that entrenched issue that we haven't been rotating enough and it was one of the things that really got us up there come the start of the season and probably one of the reasons that we led the league for so long because we were just sticking to the formula but the problem is is burnout and there's been far too much of it um we don't seem as as just as uh, bright Compact. as we once did yeah, like, I've, I've got a question like maybe that can start a debate and like I'll, I'll give my opinion later but I want to ask you too since the World Cup the number of transitions I don't have the numbers to back it up but I'm sure somebody crunched them have almost doubled and I think that it has been a problem not just with Saliba by the way because when Saliba was there there's a good portion that still showed quite a bit of transitions that were opening and I think that there's a defensive issue right now and one of the questions I want to ask is we know that we lost important players in our spine, and we know we don't have those replacements. So Mikel is going to have to create a creative solution. Why do you guys not think that more big space players, and I mean your Kieran Tierney's, your Emil Smith-Rose, weren't used if that was the game state you were more likely to see in the second half of the season by the manager? And why 
you think that commitment to ideals, like what comes first, commitment to your principles or understanding that the squad's limits don't allow you to play to a certain way? I think if you look at Mikel's entire history at Arsenal, it's always been commitment to principles. And that's been one of the, uh, the, the more stubborn parts of his personality that I think he's come under criticism for. Um, commitment to playing the same way no matter what, even without the pieces that that fuel that. We've not seen big, big deviations this season other than a couple of times from what would now cons- be considered the norm. And I think that's been... You have to be malleable. Pep, uh, we, we, he's called a gargantuan overthinker. But look at the different systems that they have employed this season. They haven't stuck to a singular idea. They've stuck to the idea and the principles of the way that they want to move the ball and how they want to move a team, but they don't do it in the same shape and in the same lanes every single game. And I think that's probably where this fatigue comes from. It's also a fatigue of ideals. Uh, Sometimes you see it with with teams that come up to the Premier League. I guarantee you we'll see it with Fulham next season. Fulham will be close to relegation next season because they'll have been worked out. And that, and if you look at Fulham's numbers, they're really poor. They're really, really poor. They should be closer to the bottom kind of six teams, but they've they've gotten some good results and they've had a good season. And I think that's the problem is when you play the same way with the same people and the same ideals for so long, you're just giving ammunition for other people to figure you out. And then when they do figure you out and you refuse to change anything, that's when you see results like Southampton away where, you know, we, we, we just aren't trying new things. And, and that is, yeah, I mean, it's just difficult to take, isn't it? I actually think, I think you're bang on, Brad. I really think you're bang on. And, you know, to, to return to your question about transitions, George, like, I do think a lot of it is, you know, we, all three of us as, you know, maybe I should speak for myself, ultimately fans, you know, we're not, you know, George, you know, George has got your for be it, his you for be it, you guys, but... But, you know, ultimately, we're not working at professional football clubs. If we can sit here and be very clear about Arsenal's game model, about how we like to build up, where we like to go, using the wide areas, the wide triangle, you can go through all the stuff and look through all of our podcasts and whatever and all the things that we've talked about, the way that Arsenal play. If we can do that, that tells me that there must be (laughs) data analysts and recruitment analysts and all those people at other clubs going that's what Arsenal are doing. That's interesting. Let's see what we can do. And, you know, I'm looking at Man City's transfers at the moment. Manuel Akanji was 17 million euros. They're not spending 150 million euros to get someone that we it's simply unattainable for us to get. Do you think if we'd gone in early and got in Emmanuel Akanji, it would have, it, we, we couldn't have done that? I think we absolutely could have done that. And similarly, you know, the summer before, you know, I'm looking at their summer and, you know, they bought in Julian Alvarez for 21 million. Now, look, again... Oh, I'm, I'm are, calling absolute cook-in-the-books bullshit on that number, <laughs> by the way. Okay, but they're, I'm not, they're a very well-run club. I'm, I'm, you, know, I'm not, you know, I'm not suggesting it's as simple as just the, the transfer fee and why couldn't we have managed that, right? It's about the forward thinking. But Mikel, if, if he's not going to use his squad, if he's, if he's going to be very, very, very specific about principles and profiles, which we love, by the way, and we spend a lot of time saying, I love the fact that Mikel doesn't, says what he likes. You know, we're looking at the links to Simicon. 
he's you know I've had a, a, a bit of a look since we um since we chatted George. He is a large space tall righty who can play centre back and right back, similarly to Tomiyasu, similarly to Ben White. Not same, not the same as Saliba, but similar. So S- you know, Saliba could play a right back. He spent time out there for Marseille. Well, exactly. So so clearly he has an idea which is great, fine. But when you get to a point where Arteta will only use twelve or thirteen players for his idea to work. And he won't sign the Akanji-type players who can make it be, okay, you stick to those principles, but at least you have 16 or 17 players. And we can do that. That concerns me, George. I think the frustration that I've got, because actually I'm with you in general in terms of what Mikel maybe will spend. But when you look at it this January, I do find it tough because we did make an attempt to do something away from the norm. You know, I don't agree with necessarily the Jorginho. I saw positives in it. but you know, the Jorginho, the Kiwi or the Trossard, that was a January transfer window where we spent 60 million pounds in an attempt to go and solidify for the title and trying to do those kind of cheap deals that really surrounded the squad. Like Trossard's not a starter, Kiwi is not a starter, Jorginho wasn't a starter. Like those were depth signings. They were, yep. there was an attempt. Agreed. And so we tried to do it. What I think my frustration is, even if you've got the players, like mate, you're mentioning, you know, Simikin right now, when you talk about him being a large space defender, what is he great at? Transitions. When we're talking about transitions being the need, but that I see players in our squad, by the way, who are good in transitions that haven't been trusted, that is where I think my gap is where I'm really frustrated in. Because say we get a Simikin in, right? Why isn't that KT, a very similar player on the left, not being used with Emile Smith-Rowe that could function as that kind of big space central midfield player um, on the left wing? You could do that. If you really wanted Trissard, we could do the same things. Like, we're targeting the right profile, but I'm left frustrated that when push came to shove, he didn't trust the plan B. That that profile is going to solve, but then you had it in your squad. Why didn't you try it creatively? And then even then, the player that you did buy in Kiwior, by the way, you didn't trust until you felt it was too late from an experienced option that we know isn't good enough, Right. And regardless of whether or not you felt it was right or wrong to put him in when, and I understand that, ultimately, you ended up doing it when the, the battle was lost. That, I think, is the frustration from maybe a fan perspective, because he recognized the problem, and he bought for it. But he didn't try the solution, and he didn't trust the solution until all options were off the table, and he essentially had nothing to lose. That, for me, is probably the one frustration as a fan that I don't think Mikel gambles enough. Now, he doesn't do it because I know he doesn't trust the quality of the squad. But I do think that's the experienced coach talking because um, I do think that when you look at this in three, four years and you build up the squad, we're not going to see these same issues. Like, Mikel will trust the quality of the player to do this. It's just, it is a learning frustration for me that you're essentially looking at the solutions you chose that you haven't trusted did quite enough lately. Reese Nelson, huge transformation, by the way. That's all on Mikel for that project and player development, by the way. So you can't equally say that that asset was the same at the start of the season. But then again, once it's different, did he trust him enough in the key moments? That's something that we're left saying, probably not. And did it change the outcome? No, by the way. I don't think that trusting him more necessarily makes us win the title. I just think it got us into a better platform to win more games. That's what I'm more concerned about. Mm. And I think George as well, you know, let's be let's be absolutely clear. This is Mikel's squad. I'm not I'm not I'm not in any way what I'm about to say trying to say that Mikel yeah, yeah. needs time to make this. This is his team. 
But if we, the, the, it's funny because the people we're talking about, the people that he isn't trusting, Rob Holding didn't sign. Kieran Tierney didn't sign, right? El, uh, Jacker ultimately yesterday he pulls him off. You know, I, and I wonder whether that's a that's an area of improvement. Didn't sign. Smith Rowe didn't sign. You know, so yeah, Reese Nelson I, I think that's didn't a bit, sign. And I'm, and I'm not. Smith Rowe was and, and one of our most played players last season. No, no, season. no, no. no but, but Brad, let's be clear. Let's be clear. You can really like a player. You can think our player is really good and they can improve. But there is a level where what, if you look at around the world, you have like a, an idea of, of what you want a player to be. Smith Rowe can fit, let's say, 80 to 90% of what Arteta wants. But when we're dealing with these fine margins, there are still five or six players in this squad who Mikel didn't sign. And those are the players at the end of the season that we needed. So this is what I'm saying. It, it, ultimately, it's it's a squad building thing, and there is just you know, and we're only dealing again now. You know, we're not dealing with Mustafi's. We're, we're talking about fifty, sixty percentile type of dislike, right? We're t- we're talking about two or three percentile dislike. But when you're dealing with the best team in the world, that's ultimately I think is 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 a big thing. It's just those tiny little moments. You go, oh, yesterday, do I trust Emil Smith Rowe to come on and 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 do that? I probably do if he's the exact profile that I want. 100 mentally physically technically every he's probably 95 80 percent whatever it is whatever you say there but it's not a hundred percent which is what pep has ultimately it's completely his squad but he, does Let's, he does pep have a hundred percent of everything that he wants in every single player he has no probably not Kanji. no no no, no uh, probably no. not but there's a bigger margin is what i'm saying <laughs> there's there's sorry less of a margin away from exactly what he wants and my point being that the players that we're talking about that he doesn't trust are the ones that you didn't sign. This is Mikel's squad, yeah. and I'm. Do you know what I mean? But ultimately, who are we talking about? We're talking about Rob Holding. We're talking about we're talking about Kieran Tierney. We're talking about Smith Rowe. We're talking about these players who are very, very good players, and they've stayed at Arsenal for a reason. Let's be clear: he hasn't sold them for a reason. He loves these players. Does he one hundred percent trust them in to the nth degree? No. I think I think the biggest issue is like when you look at maybe say a Pep and like, you know, Brad, you're mentioning that he changed system and stuff. And when you looked at, you know, a Kanji, I think the biggest thing is Nathan Ake. Was Nathan Ake in the same perception 18 months ago, 12 months ago? And, and when he first signed him, by the way, because that was a Pep signing, right? No, like the role and the trust is very different. And I do think um, not to harp on this, it, it really is an experience thing for me. It's just because I think Mikel will learn to do this, but I draw similarities between Kiwior and how we attempted that change and Nathan Ake and how quick he was willing to trust somebody that was, by a fan perception, untrustworthy. Like Nathan Ake, if you really wanted to look at it, he was under the label of potentially being sold. Maybe he was an outskirt on the, on the squad. He wasn't a vital member. Now, you talk about Nathan Ake, he's one of the best 1v1 defenders in the league. Everybody's saying, oh my God, he's a vital member of the squad. But we have to remember that wasn't the perception previously, right? And so, again, I always push back on fan perception that the manager doesn't like a player. You as a manager need to be malleable to make sure that you adjust yourself. And Nathan Ake didn't fit the city of 18 months ago. Why does he fit the city now? And it's not just because he changed the system. Mikel adapted to the player traits, in my opinion, and it was a little bit more than just system changing, but he made it so that the best players are playing in zones that they prefer. And I don't think, for example, he's using a Trossard in a touchline role when he knows he's a close combo player. He may not prefer him, but he's a little bit more willing to put him in zones that he prefers. And I do think that's just one thing that Mikel 
struggles a little bit with where he has an excellent plan A or an excellent, you know, um, beginning system of a season. But anytime there is a little bit of strife, he struggles to replicate those patterns in other players. And I think he needs to learn to be a little bit more flexible. And it's not for a lack of knowledge. It's for a lack of trust. Mm. Yeah, I hear you. Before we move to news and views, is there anything on the incidents of the game specifically? I, I'll be honest. I mean, the refereeing performance was shocking, but yeah, fuck The me. refereeing was, but it's just, no, it's just what's that. the point talking about it anymore? It's just pointless. Yeah. The only two things I'd say, which is I, I found slightly ironic before we move on, Brighton should have won the game. Let's be, let's be absolutely clear. Oh, yeah. Both of their goals, the first two, total bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> like they should have won. I'm not. I'm not trying to pretend. You know. Oh, we should. You know, I'm not. I'm not being like that. That second goal, the way it bounces off Trossard's knee, is is like it could. You could not have placed it. You could not have placed it any Brilliant better. assist from Trossard. Brilliant. <laughs> you know what I mean? Brilliant yeah, assist for his old team. Inside man. And the first one, absolutely, in my opinion, should have been ruled out. But again, you know, we're dealing with Kivior. He probably is just still getting used to the league. Still getting used to the position. 18 months time probably doesn't do that and you know just carries on with one boot on or you know does something that shows you know he's he's only got I do shoe. find it mad I do find it mad that we've got referees in this league who will see a player that doesn't have a boot on because it's been trodden off of their fucking foot and think that's totally normal yeah, I, 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 I can't believe it's... Look, it's a, I keep needing to reiterate. Brighton should have won. Let's be clear. Brighton should have won two or three, possibly even even more. But both of those first two goals were just fucking bollocks. And then the third is we're just, we're just giving up. I'd given up even on the game. Um, anything else before we move to news and views? I will say, like, I, I know we haven't necessarily addressed the second half, but I do think that there wasn't a structural issue necessarily. But with the second half, I will say a lot of it for me came down to application and us stopping to run and us giving up. Because, uh, again, I, I think we talked about the press and why things weren't and were not working, but we were very competitive in the first half. Like, make no mistake about it. Like, we were within that game. I just think within the first 10 minutes when that goal goes in, again, um, and call it poor or not, but our experienced players didn't step up. Everybody's heads dropped. But for me, that's what you're looking for. You're looking for your experienced players to get you through those difficult moments. And I just think the intensity in that Christmas tree press was done. People weren't following their assignments. And the pivot, for example, just let Brighton get out because you didn't see those turnovers happen again. And it wasn't just because the structure was immediately poor in the second half. It was just because I think the application and our running and our intensity just dropped off. We did, we did give up. And I think that's part of the unacceptable nature that I think we're all frustrated with in this podcast that I think no matter what, at least try, put yourself like, I, I don't mind losing even three nil. If you sat there and kept the intensity up and look, it's shitty goals and you can hold your hands up. Like, damn, I hate the fact those goals went in. I think the bad taste in every fan's mouth right now, after watching that game is you could see the players give up like visibly. And I think that is the frustrating part. And Mikel did mention in the post-match, I think that is what he's talking about with the faces and how surprised he was because there's a way to lose. Every coach will tell you that. And if you just put your head down and you grit yourself through with trying to commit yourself to the same game plan, no problem losing that way. But the fact that you could just visibly see everybody's heads go down. And I think, um, I don't know, I'm frustrated with the Jesus comments. I don't know if anybody's, uh, you know, seen them. But, you know, he kind of is talking about we've got to make sure that we're fighting to the title to the end. And I'm frustrated because he's one of the primary people that I saw get, give up in the game. And I just don't like um, the tendency that I'm seeing from some of the experienced players talking after the match about um, trying and making sure you fight to the end when 
you're one of the main reasons for that faltering. I I think there's a slight thing with him and Zinchenko where they think, oh, we've come into a young team. We're showing you how to do it. And it's like, well, hang on a minute. You're you're not (laughs) part of the problem. (laughs) Yes, yes, yes. And that's what I'm getting at where it's like, listen, I understand what you've done in the past, but I don't want I don't want to be big brothered in my own team. Does that make sense? Where it's like, I don't want my experienced players to say, listen, Especially well, I've when the big X- brother's the one that's far, are part of the fucking problem. Well, exactly. And, you know, <laughs> if you're keeping it 100, the youngsters have been saving you, not just all season, but have been saving Arsenal for a period of almost four to five years. So, like, I just don't appreciate that type of... I, I don't mind the quote, keeping it like, you know, we have to try to the end. But he also paired that with last week blaming the players for, like, the Southampton game where he felt like it was a little bit of he said she said and i'm not a fan of that creeping in and i know it's we can't say anything negative about zinchenko or jesus because you get lynched but i don't like what i'm seeing because i see it as a little bit of a common pattern between not just now um but i even think zinchenko throughout the season like those comments are a little bit more regular um and i and i think they need to be mature and also own their own skin like stop justifying why you've come over or whatnot just play to the maximum and say the team didn't do it don't isolate groups of players. That's not something I like. Completely agree. Completely. I'd agree. also like to say that this is the third season in a row that are £180,000 a week, top of the line DM has, has capitulated for in the running. So yeah. um, sell him in the summer, please. Buy somebody else. Like th- no three years in three years in a row. Surely that's surely that's enough time to go because uh, at one point you go okay. Do you know what? It's injury Let, problems, and then you go okay. Let's do this in his reviews. Let's do this in his reviews. I think because we've I got I got got stuff to talk about. But yeah, George on the on the Jesus thing. Yeah, because I I also just think like if there's anyone who pulled themselves out of the structure yesterday and started playing their own game, it was Jesus. He was jumping yeah. in, and I could tell that's part of the reason. I'll take that to him off. Uh, Bradley, we'll see you. After this. Oh, jeez, Dad, not the car again. Oh, happens all the time with old Betsy. Have you checked out Carvana yet? They have thousands of cars for under $20,000. But do those thousands of cars have personality like old Betsy? Betsy's held together by tape. And there are raccoons living in the engine. It's a family car. Uh, there are flames on the hood. Ah, custom paint job. No, Dad, the car's on fire. How many cars did you say Carvana had? Visit Carvana.com to shop thousands of cars for under $20,000. We'll drive you happy at Carvana. News and Welcome back to News and Views, where we give you all the news and all of your views, but mostly ours. Thank you for... <clears throat> Thank you to those of you who are in the different non-members club. Join at patreon.com for slash not and get access to that exclusive Discord server. Ooh. Ad-free versions of all of our content, including main and bonus podcasts, instant reactions, the rewatch, and bonus video content. Can you imagine how much content you're getting for £3 a month? Content. And for one-time support, head to buymeacoffee.com forward slash diff. Not where you can... Buy me a coffee. The links are in the show description. Before we go back into Arsenal, did anyone see that fucking disgrace from Antonio Conte liking that Instagram post of Arsenal failed to show up when it mattered with Arteta looking really sad and Arsenal's last seven matches, D-D-D-L-W-W-L. Where did Conte leave Spurs? No, mate, you don't need to bash Conte. I mean, it's just... It's just embarrassing. 
It's imba- and, 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 and like I'm not even putting this in like a fan ha ha like oh god aren't Spurs shit Spurs are shit right like let's be clear they get battered everywhere they go that's deeply unprofessional in my opinion and just disrespectful to a guy who's 12 years your junior who is who's beat you twice this season who's doing very well if you're a coach and you care about football you like Mikel Arteta if you're an egoic prick who only cares about yourself. You don't like him. Because if you look at what's happening with Arsenal, you look at how the, the football we're playing, if you're a football lover, you love Arsenal at the moment. Antonio Conte is not a football lover. He's, a, he's an Antonio Conte lover. And I think he's a prick. I don't have much to add to that. He's just, it was, it was a little bit ridiculous. And I just, it was so immature. And um, I don't know. I, you know that he felt like uh, good about himself doing it, you know, and and I think it was very intentional. It was just it was just ridiculous, really. And and I agree with you. I think that there's been this weird discourse. If anything, the Arsenal hate um, showed how much we're feared. I'll be honest with you. I, I, I'm taking oh, yeah. great pleasure in this media outpouring because not just Antonio Conte. You can look at the Jamie Carragher, the Kerry Neville defenses. Like it's just very hypocritical. I, I can hear a lot of criticisms of the team, but not from some players and pundits by the way who never believed that we would get top four to begin with you know and it's it's funny <laughs> yeah mate and and also just while we're on that i think it's worth saying i i'm generally if if, if people haven't politically worked out generally pretty anti-capitalist right i understand it <laughs> but it's like you know it's there's so many problems with it and you know i'm not going to sit here and pretend i have the answers to an alternative system but i think there's lots of problems with it but i think when you view Sky Sports analysis through capitalism, you start to understand it, right? You're like, okay, what they need is the most interesting version of this narrative, which would be yesterday, Arsenal bottling the title. That would be the most interesting version of it. And ultimately, what does most interesting mean? It's most profitable. It's the thing that they can sell. They can get clicks on YouTube and their business model stands up. Those those values and those ideas are so entrenched into what, into what they do that it's almost probably not even conscious. However, Gary Neville is biased. It's obje- oh, yeah. it's objective, and I like I, I understand it to some degree. Like I'm like okay, yeah, you know he accepts he's a, he's a United fan. I, I don't know whether you hear the coverage in in Canada, George, but th- the thing that pisses me off is that it's the way so many fans. We talked about this before, Brad. Right? Like narratives do matter. Like they actually do in, in on some level. They do affect teams. They do affect wider football discourse, and they have. Um, genuine things you know genuine um repercussions on the pitch even with refereeing decisions i think there's certain refereeing decisions that happened this year and last year that are based on the idea of arsenal being soft you know that there is a there is a reputation right that, that precedes people and these very important almost like viewing glasses these frameworks that sky give you are important and that's why i rally against them gary neville yesterday I w- I'm going to make a compilation at some point. I'm going to do it and just put it on, on put it on Twitter and see see what happens. Partey goes down injured. He's whinging. Caicedo goes down injured. He's battling. Arsenal lose the ball. We're rattled. Brighton lose the ball. We're tr- they're trying. And you go through all of these things and you see that actually there is a genuine. And I'm not trying to. I'm not. I'm not being a fan like oh, not my team. It matters. Like, Brad, like, I know we've spoken about this before, but, like, it does matter. And it really pisses me off. Just get him off comms. Get him off comms. He's, he's, a, he's a United fan. It's busy. If someone said to you, oh, Sky have got... Uh, you what was the, the last piece of good 
good and good analysis, uh, technically technically astute piece of coverage that you can remember that left Gary Neville's mouth that you went, oh, I'm thinking about this situation differently now. Yeah, I don't know. But like realistically, if someone told, if someone came to you, right, and said, oh, Scott, the, the main coverage in the UK, which millions of people watch, by the way, is a 77-year-old man who um, is past it. Sorry, Martin. And a a guy who was an ex-footballer who was in rivalries with so many of these clubs, runs his own football club and a million different hotels and hospitals and God knows what else Gary Neville does, all these other things. He's an ex-player of one of their biggest rivals and he's commentating on their games week in, week out. You'd be like, why? Just get someone who understands the game or just a neutral, surely. I don't get it. Like, I know it's an easy, it's low, again, low-hanging fruit, but it just... It does affect things, in my opinion. It does affect the narrative, so it just it pisses me off. <sighs> I'll get over it one day, right? Um, Williams, meet you, Bogovic. Like, <laughs> Williams, meet you, Bogovic. Uh, at Tricky Reds fourteen, what are the major concerns going into the new season, which won't be fixed? By signing players, Bradley. Before we come, uh, before we come Thomas to the party, before we come to the signings. Okay, yeah, party. Massive, massive problem. This is the third season in a row in an important run-in that he's gone AWOL, and not all of it is down to injury, and that is a problem that we. I mean, we can solve in the market by just completely replacing him, but I'm wondering whether we can solve within him, because it's it's. Well, do you know what I mean? For me once more for whatever the fucking phrase is. Three <laughs> seasons in a fucking row is a bit of a piss take now. Uh, for a for one of our highest, pretty much I think our highest paid player on something like 160, 180,000 pounds a week. And to just, uh, yeah, I think I'm very much past the point with, I mean, I was past the point when we found out a lot of, other things that we've already discussed on this podcast, but that would be why we're not discussing it because there's no bloody point. But this again is just, it's clear and present day as to why we're linked to both Declan Rice and Caicedo in the summer and why fans are clamouring for both. It's all well and good having a Ferrari in the garage, but if the fucking catty on it goes every couple of times you take it out for a test drive, there's something wrong with it. It doesn't work the way that it should. And that's a big, big, big problem. Three years in a row, three major disappointments in a row from him. I mean, ultimately, he's we also are. fucking old. <laughs> 29. Um, if he's old, you're fucked, mate. Um, yeah, I think, um, I mean, we literally are talking about the market now, right? Well, well just well, just for that here, I, I do want to answer the non-market question, but, you know, Sammy Mockbull just came out with a, an exclusive that we're officially talking with over 90 million pounds for a certain Basmati and a 300-week oh, contract, which is um, early links to a fee agreement. So, look, I, I think... Good, um, because I'm fucking bored of our players ruining our seasons by just deciding they'd rather be in fucking Zanti so they... I, I can't deal with it. I think Pisses that's significant, me off. by the way, because that's a huge journalist about understanding like a fee agreement, which yes. is no longer just in the ether. And like, by it's the way, it's also saying Declan Rice with the Gunners. Also, they're talking about 
Granite Xhaka with Bayer Leverkusen. Yeah. Sammy Mopal is very reliable. I wouldn't normally talk about um uh Rubens, but he's 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 pretty reliable. Yeah. Okay, that's and, interesting. And, but um to not make it a market concern, because we kind of made it there, I think the question was without being solved by signings. Um, look, some of the problems that we're going to still face, by the way, is maturity and confidence. Um, you know, we keep saying that's a young team, but I don't think that everybody's going to be peaking at the same moment. And I think that for as good as some of our young stars are, there still is a little bit of them fighting the youngster tag and not being a superstar tag. And that comes with being a little bit more of a ruthless killer, both in actions, but also on the pitch and demanding superstar treatment. So when you're talking about um, us getting fouls and you talk about Brighton, by the way, that would never happen with City. What happened yesterday with the refs, that would never happen with City. And, and I think part of that, which won't be solved next season, that we will need, and it only happens when you basically win the title. And that is something that we have to earn the respect for. Um, you know, Another thing that I don't think will be solved is Mikel Arteta still learning to be flexible. I don't think next year, despite us, me being very optimistic about the future, I don't think that we're going to be ecstatic with his substitutions. I don't think we complete the squad enough that he's able to show that either. So I think ignoring signings, there's still a level of development for Mikel to even do to get to the next level of manager that he is going to become. So I think those are two things that you're going to see that maybe are problems next season that we may not be able to fix with signings. Yeah, I think there's still a, a rigidity about Mikel that I think can only, can ultimately can only come from when he gets results from doing different things. I think I think Mikel is a, is a, is actually a very conservative manager, and similarly, he when he talks about Pep, one of the one of his favorite anecdotes is actually that Pep says he's one of the most defensive managers in the world um, because he because of the way he sets his teams up, you know, in terms of the amount of people behind the ball. So um, yeah, I, I I think until Mikel wins something, whether you know realistically major like a Premier League or or a, or a Champions League, I I don't think we're going to see someone who is willing to, for example, just chuck in a young player and see what happens. Because, he, you know, ultimately, I think once you've won a league title or something, you do develop a different... There's a, there's a different sort of feeling around the club. And there's a different feeling around the players and there's a different sort of confidence going to certain games. And I think at the moment we're reaching all the time. So we feel like we need to be at our best. And I think this this also leads into the, the idea that um, we, we you know, one thing knocks us off very quickly i think you know we are our, our best football is always with you know has to be with our first 11 and you know the moment someone's out you know we're fucked or whatever and i think that's going to be the case for a little while because i think until we win something that confidence to go out there be like oh we'll be fine even without two or three players i don't think i don't think it's going to be there certainly from a, from a fan perspective um let's discuss then the uh midfield because people do want to, people do want to talk about this and as much as we don't want to um, just be speaking about transfers. We are getting to that end of the season. We've had that news, obviously, that Arsenal talks with Declan Rice. We knew that was coming, uh, that Xhaka's leaving. Brad, how do you see our midfield shaping up next season? What do you think we need? Bless you. And what do you think we can possibly be rid of? My, my feeling, I had a friend text me earlier saying, would you be happy with selling Partey, Xhaka and Jorginho and bringing in Tielemans, Rice, Caicedo plus one. And I was like, look, signings are exciting. Oh, yeah. <laughs> signings are exciting. But that is a lot of change. That's two out of three of I'd our starting midfielders. I'd rather keep Jacker 
Yeah, I'd rather keep Xhaka than have Tielemans, if I'm honest. But. Yeah, same. But, you know, that's that's a lot of change, right? And, and I, I don't <laughs> want to destabilise the team. And I think it's much more about progressive progressive overload and being careful about how we change things. I would like, for example, to sign two that we want to integrate into the team and let them earn their place rather than necessarily, you know, let's say, let's say for example, we signed a Rice and a Caicedo. I'd want to keep Partey and Xhaka. And then, if we can... And then start them, you know, on the first day of the season or, or start whoever's ready and let the best man win, really. And then sell whoever's whoever's um, not in that group in January or in the summer. You know, that that's that's my ideal situation. I appreciate that might not always be the case. But yeah, your ideal midfield next season. We're in, we're in the Champions League as well. So we've, we've got a Billy lot Bing, of Billy Dong, man. We've got a lot of high quality minutes to contend with. Uh, ideally for me, my my midfield next season consists of Partey, Xhaka, Erdegaard, Vieira, ESR, and two. So Caicedo Rice. I'd, if if you know, I think that as a group is very well balanced. It's got a lot of different skill sets. It's got a lot of high quality profiles, and covers for itself quite well. I don't think you let Xhaka go for the money that they're talking about now for the sake of it. I'd rather keep him another season, and I think his contract would be up, so we'd lose him on a free. Um, but I I don't see us extracting value. I think the value that Xhaka would offer us in the minutes that he would play next season in the Champions League, in the Cups, or in the league, is much more than the 10 to 15, maybe 20 million pounds that we'd get for him. So I would, I think we need two, uh, because I think we definitely need somebody to replace Thomas Partey. Uh, as the starting six because of the fact that it's been three seasons in a row that we've we've had him go missing on us. And then I think we also need somebody in that kind of eight position uh, uh, as well. And I think that Caicedo and Rice are, are two spectacular options for the both of them. The one thing that I would say, though, is I don't think either of them replace Partey. I think I'd see Rice maybe a bit further forward, especially at the start of his Arsenal career. I don't think he'll immediately drop into the six. Um, but I could be wrong. Uh, I've seen the know, future. It's, you it's are It's tricky, isn't it? I think well, the fact uh, that, that Cosetta could play right back is also interesting. Uh, George, your thoughts? Mm. Well, I do not think that you can let Charlie Patino and Granit Xhaka go and not replace him with a ready-made solution. I will say that. I think, um, to be fair, I know we were talking about it before, Alex, but when you do look at it, like a Rice-Sado, Kaiseido is the only player in world football I can understand Granite Shaka leaving the club for. Um, and, and, and why I say that is because when you have a look at what you lose in, not necessarily a leadership sense, but what you lose in terms of the second ball retention in the press, um, you get a, in greater athleticism, greater hit fluidity, and greater build-up play with Caicedo, even if the experience isn't there. And you also get greater flexibility. As much as I love Granit Xhaka and his ability to offer dual roles in the midfield, Caicedo has a greater versatility, not just in the exact same midfield role, but also in fullback areas. So uh, I think Caicedo is probably the only player I understand that with. The issue that I've got, though, is there's going to be an experience um, gap and I do think that there's a free market, and I know people don't like it, but, you know, um, Conte and Ilkay Gundogan are two frees that I think you must pair a leadership pairing with because the one thing if you're going to let Granit Xhaka go, which I don't love, I don't like the idea of entering a Champions League 
with players that have never played in the Champions League. And I understand that that's a narrative that people like to see, but we saw the effect of what a lack of experience cost us in this title run-in. And I do think that we need a voice there. So, look, there's um, a freeze that can help us. George, but also we saw Jorginho coming in against Newcastle, that ability for someone who's been in that situation before, the calmness that he showed. You see there's someone who's been in those situations before, so I think you're right. Even with a profile that everybody was thought was the worst profile for that exact midfield. Like when people included. Look at the physicality. Yes, yes. No, no, hands up. I think everybody did. But I, I just think that shows the value of experience, right? So for me, if you're getting rid of a, an emerging talent, we have them. So I, I don't understand this idea of being worried about our youth squad. We have them. We've talked about my obsession with youth. Um, we've got MLS coming, right? So like, I don't mind... Re- reducing one of the academy grads and Bettino and then an experienced player. But in my opinion, you must pair that with an experience somewhere that you're losing, right? So I would like to see a third. But again, that also would probably mean, George, where's your third midfielder going? And I would probably point to Elneny not being here. I would point to Jorginho, I'm happy to lose, and replace Jorginho, say, with an LK Gundogan, let's say, you know, for one or two years. <laughs> It'll take that, yeah. Um, <laughs> but um, but yeah, yeah, you take that, right? But um, I do I do worry about the Granit Xhaka leaving, and that is a part of me as an emotional fan, understanding the journey that he's went on, by the way, and the catharsis. And there is a little bit of me that said, if there was one player in this Arsenal squad that deserved to see Champions League football for all the crap he has taken in England for all the years, it was Granit Xhaka. And I'm not going to sit here and say maybe bias a little bit creeping into it here, but it is ludicrously exciting. And I'll just end on this that. Granite Shaka is leaving because what does that say about Mikel Arteta's ruthless streak, yes, by the way? Which we've been in speaking terms about, of yep. all of this, like it screams ruthlessness. Yeah. And I will say, yeah, no, 100%, especially with someone like Granite, who, you know, is such a yeah. big character at the club. Character he might just feel like his journey's done. Do you know what I mean? Maybe he will, but I also, you know, I'm looking at the Bundesliga yeah. now. Leverkusen aren't, aren't getting the Champions League, I'll tell you that. They might not even get Conference League. I think we over, I do think we over index the Champions League. I really do. For I, I think for the best of the best in the world, it's probably really important for their legacies and their careers to be playing in the Champions League and winning in the Champions League. But for other players, and especially like Xhaka has played in the Champions League. He's now been in London for seven seven years. He might just want to return back to Germany. His wife might want to return to Germany. It might be a familial decision. And I do think that sometimes we can over-annex these things from a fan point of view. Um, yes, but I, it, you know, but I also feel what George was saying, like maybe, maybe this is, as you say, Brad, maybe, maybe we're over-index, over-indexing it and there's a kind of... That's it, index, <coughs> not annex. Oh, what did you say? I said annex over and over. Oh, right. <laughs> silly bastards. Um, yeah, maybe, maybe we are. And, you know, Xhaka doesn't actually care as much as we think. But as George said, I do just want to see him lining up, captaining Arsenal in the Champions League yeah. group stage no, game. Do you know what I mean? Really I'd so. love it. I'd love it. But that's definitely my motion speaking. Final uh, thing before we uh, uh, go to Arsenal trivia. The other name we're hearing is Musa Diaby, again from, from Bayer Leverkusen. If Leverkusen aren't going to be in Europe again, that might make that deal a little bit easier. George, do you know anything about the player? I've not watched him. I, you know, I know the profile. I've seen him, you know, on highlights reels, but I don't know him particularly. What's your thoughts? I do know him. Um, you met him, and yeah. I'm not. I'm not. A ma- I'm not a massive fan. Um, I Ooh. think that he is a very good player. Um, I think he suits a particular game state. 
Um, and I think my fear with this type of players is, is he is a project. You know, I think um, when you looked at kind of Mudrick... And I, an expensive one. Unexpe- that's but what I was getting we, to. I think. Do we need the finished product, value- though, considering what we have on our exterior? Well, I, I want to ask, like, is 60, million, is 60 million pounds worth a project, an overvaluation when, you know, you do have, let's say, a certain Amario Cozier Dubier. You do have Jesus who could operate in touchline role. Like, do you think 60 million pounds for that type of hole and sack a deputy is absolutely necessary? Maybe if Reese Nelson is refusing contracts, which it seems like it is, and you're not going to have that, you need an option there. And I agree we need one, but I'm not comfortable with overpaying on value. Now, if you're talking Musa Diaby for 45 million pounds, my eyes open up. I don't think he's worth more than 40 to 45 million pounds. Why I say that, um, there's pros to him, right? He is a huge transition weapon. There's nothing getting around that. He's very explosive over the first five yards, something that people will love. He is a huge athlete in explosiveness. The one thing that he doesn't have, though, is he isn't you know, um, a close contact dribbler. He's very much a push and run. And so he struggles against low blocks. He lacks kind of control in tight spaces and he has really poor decision making. But one thing that's really exciting is he's got excellent ball striking and really good variety too. Like he's got a short back lift and a lot of power with it. It's just the only thing with it is it's not consistent again too. Like he doesn't consistently strike through the ball cleanly, but when he does, it's exciting. It's beautiful. And so you are looking at a project now. Um, if we do this type of deal, maybe Shaka going means that, you know, you kind of shave off some value and they don't charge you the overpriceness, but I'm just worried about evaluation on Diaby. I don't think he'll give you an elite uh, ceiling, but is he a great bench option for Champions League nights and also gives you an alternative to Martinelli as an outlet? Yes. So there's pros and cons to it. I just don't love it as yeah. a superstar signing. So what I'm hearing I... is a left-footed French speaker who struggles in tight spaces do we have one of those (laughs) i think the thing that you have to look at as well is there's 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 bit there's a a fair amount of business to be done in the summer we want probably a defender if not two you know um two midfielders and then uh, as much as i think that reese nelson and this new contract and uh, and the talk he's not a right winger he's not the style of right winger that we want to cover saka so we're probably going to bring somebody in on that side, even if we keep Nelson. So you're already talking between four and five signings, two of which we want to be Caicedo and Rice, which is going to be £150 million straight off the bat. So 60 mil on a, on a project winger that might not have the same output as, say, 20, 25 million on Solly March to come in and play cup games and, and take minutes in the Premier League as a known quantity mm. it's a it's a difficult kind of conversation i think i just don't think it's worth the gamble yeah i'd rather spend the money elsewhere can i ask you a question project for 60 million or wilfred zaha zaha on a free no because zaha's not a right winger um yeah but mate he, well, he in champions league it no, like zaha no it matters it really century, really matters like, it really who else, like if you look at what we like to do with our winger profiles Zaha does not fit that, especially seeing as the place that we're looking to cover is the right-hand side. Like, we've already got Trossard, Nelson and Martinelli for that left-hand channel. Even if you discount Trossard, you're still talking about Nelson and Martinelli and still only having Saka out on the right-hand side. I just don't see it. I think it would be a big... It's a 
big risk. If if Saka gets a big injury, which is likely because the boy has played an awful lot of football, we need an analog. We need somebody who can do. Do you think a similar thing with similar as like a angles. profile? So, for example, like Saka, the one thing with Saka is he's a unicorn. You're never going to get a deputy for that. But the one no, thing I would argue, for example, is is like I think a Bukayo Saka alternative needs to be somebody that's good in close combination because we don't have somebody on that right-hand side that can receive on his left that is good in close combination. So whoever you put there has to be. I think my one issue with Diaby is he's the exact opposite yeah. of that, essentially. And so is that worth 60 million pounds? I don't know. Look, there's a youngster, everybody, shock, that I love <laughs> in Brazil that is not old enough for us to go for. Um, Kill your name- darlings. Fuck <laughs> the youngsters. We want to win things. They literally fuck the youngsters. Well, yeah, no, that's that, would, that would but, be. But that is a dry market. I think what I'm getting at is the left-footed right winger is a dry market. Rafinha yeah. is going to be staying at Barcelona. So, like in terms of alternatives, I'm not a fan of spending money where value isn't there. And I think we've spent the last two summers walking away from value. So even though I'm sat here saying I'm afraid Diaby isn't value, I really doubt Arsenal are going to suddenly shift away from their policy of not going towards value when they have for Martinez, they have for Vlahovic, they have in the past. So like they recognize my fear and they adhere to yeah, it. So they listen to um, you specifically. I think. That's what I'm saying. It's all about me. Honestly, I will not stop bagging this drum. <laughs> go and look at Solly March's numbers. Go and look at how well they match up to Bukayo Saka. And he's a known quantity from a club that plays good football. I think that it's a, it's a solid move. It's a solid move. Let's, um, I'm going to finish on this. I've got four players I think we should get. Um, it's a centre-back, a midfielder, a goalkeeper, a goalkeeper, and a striker. And it's Williams, Fellaini, Bergevic, <laughs> and Beachu. Get your money out, buddy. <laughs> Bradley, we've just got time for a little bit of Arsenal trivia. Last time out, the theme was kit sponsors. And I asked you to name the kit manufacturer and the shirt sponsor from 2006 to 2014, 2014 to 2019, and 2019 to present. Well, the shirt sponsor for that whole period has been Fly Emirates. Correct, yeah. Yes, it's Nike, Puma, Adidas. Nike, Puma, Adidas. Puma, Adidas. He got it, baby. God, those fucking po- those those Puma shirts were rancid. Dog. Absolutely, they were dog. fucking shite. Bradley, I'll be coming to you for a theme. Nike, Puma, Adidas. <laughs> Arsenal have the record Puma. in the league for consecutive away league games without defeat, and it was from the fifth of April to two thousand uh, to two thousand three. Fifth of April two thousand three to the twenty fifth of September. 2004 what is that number what is the record number that Arsenal hold of consecutive away league games without defeat that was attained from the 5th of April 2003 all the way through to the 25th of September 2004 you can work it out if you think about how many league games there would have been in that time and a theme please scrambly brapples why don't we go for sleeve sponsors I feel like we haven't done that. We're scratching the fucking bottom of the barrel. This yeah, season, we might right? need to start uh, branching out into other <laughs> other areas. Maybe it should just become football trivia. Uh, well, that was therapeutic for me. Yeah, 
Yeah, I feel better. better. I mean, we're not going to, you know, what's great about football, right, is that it never stops. It doesn't matter what you do. There will never be one winner. You can, there's always hope. You can always keep going. That's what keeps us buying, buying the merch, keeps us buying the tickets, keeps us selling you podcasts, selling you Patreons. Money makes the world go round, baby. three pounds a month. Just three pounds a month. <laughs> For lots of extra bonus content. And if you've gotten to this point of the podcast, yeah, come on. you might as well just admit to yourself. If you've listened to an hour and 18 minutes of us three waffling on about Arsenal Football Club, sign up to the Patreon. What's wrong with you? Three pounds a month. It's less than the price of a coffee. They're here for me, Alex. That's all it is. I think they actually are. They actually are. Some, to be fair, most of the tweets we get are, can Brad do X or can Brad do Y? Or what? I, I, am, I am monkey dance. Or, yeah, or, or what was Brad's Anne Frank joke, which we will never reveal? <laughs> <laughs> Listen, thanks as oh, always for listening. We appreciate it. Um, we'll be back after who we play next. Nottingham Forest, doesn't matter. We've lost the league, so it doesn't matter. That's it. That's it. Football over. <laughs> Uh, back off to Forest. We've got an instant reaction for the patrons, and we'll have a bonus podcast out for the patrons during the I week hope we as let well. Forest win so fucking Leicester get relegated, the dirty bastards. Okay. Uh, thanks as always for listening. <laughs> <laughs> Keep it different, Knock, and we will see you later. <laughs> Peace. Peace. Thank you so much for listening to The Different Knock, an Arsenal podcast. Please hit subscribe or follow on whatever platform you're using. If you'd like to support The Different Knock, you can find us on Patreon and buymeacoffee.com. We're on all social media at Diffknock. Thanks. Podcast Network.